I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement, And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. If you're an executive leader listening today, then you are at the right place. In this episode with Sarah Judd Welsh, Principal and CEO of Sharehold, an innovation consultancy, you will gain pioneering insight into how to design change that has impact on both the bottom line and well-being of employees. You've probably already heard the buzz around the cost to organizations when employees don't feel like they belong. Well, Sarah shares stories about how listening is a powerful tool to create a culture of belonging in ways beyond what you may have already considered. Sarah believes that it's our collective responsibility to create environments and cultures in which everyone is seen, heard, and valued. And most recently, she led the research report, Redesigning Belonging, How Uncertainty Magnifies Belonging at Work. Her clients range from Google to the School Foundation and Meetup. Enjoy listening in. Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you here on the Listen In podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Raquel. I'm really excited about our conversation because I think it will take a little bit of a different direction than the conversations that I've had so far. And at the same time, I'd like to start off with a question that I ask just about everybody. Um, When do you remember or can you think of a moment where you first started to notice listening? the impact of listening, whether it worked or it didn't work? (laughs) You know, that's a really interesting question because there's a few different ways that I could approach that. One is, you know, you begin to learn as a child just how important listening is in terms of, you know, getting what it is that you want, whether that's like an extra cookie or persuading a parent to increase your allowance. But on a more professional level, I believe I started to notice the power of listening probably about three years ago. You know, I've been doing this work in my innovation practice for 12 or not 12 years. I've been doing this work since 2012. And for a long time now, design research and stakeholder interviews have been a major part of our process. However, it wasn't until probably 2018 where I began to notice that the organizations that were listening well were significantly more successful in our client work outcomes. So I would say it's probably about three to four years ago that I really began to notice just how powerful listening could be as an organizational capacity Hmm. and as a lever for change. Okay. Now we're definitely going to get more into that soon. Maybe we can first talk about what you actually do. I mean, you you say you have written, or this is what's on your website, you have an innovation consultancy. I'd like to know more. What does that really mean? (laughs) What does it mean to be an innovation (laughs) consultancy? That is the magic question. Um, You know, like the cheeky way to say this, like we help people innovate. But in reality, an innovation consultancy means that we help people move forward, whatever that means for them. A lot of our clients are coming to us at an inflectuation point. They have launched something that was significantly more successful than they anticipated, and now they need to figure out how to operationalize it and scale it. They have experienced significant failure, and they're looking to rebound. They're navigating a leadership transition. 
They're at the crossroads of uncertainty, which I feel like is nearly every single company at this point in this age in 2021, where they're considering various options and trying to decide where to go next. So a lot of our work at Shareholds is really helping people to understand where it is that they're going and to gain clarity about where they're going and more specifically to bring their people along with them. We would describe our innovation practice as focused on organizational design and community design, which means that the challenges that we're solving are inherently about groups of people working together, whether that is, you know, the Skull Foundation and building a global network of social entrepreneurs to um, Google and focusing on their future of work or on their greater design community internally at Google. So it's very incredibly variant, I would say, from um, you know churches, universities, groups of people online to the much more ephemeral or perhaps the more specific of teams working together to accomplish a specific end. I'm just going to guess that maybe when you first started your company, um, compared to where you are now. Has the direction surprised you in terms of why your clients are coming to you for help? I, I never thought that I would be doing this work today of running an innovation consultancy. My, my current company today, Sharehold, is an output of my first company, Loyal. And Loyal was a community design consultancy, which is effectively the same work that Sharehold does today, but it was a much more specifically focused on community design. So working with different types of organizations, mostly tech companies at that point, to build communities online. And part of the reason why we made that shift is that we saw that in order for communities to evolve, to change, to innovate, and for organizations to be successful in their community efforts, oftentimes the change that was required was internal to them as an organization. It was about shifting their values and shifting the way they operated and practiced as a whole and as an organization. And so I never thought that we would be doing this work today. I really started out with this much more specific focus and belief that community is inherently valuable, both for the person and the soul. And on um, a more micro level, it's also incredibly value for business. And I'm not going to go into the stats and metrics around the business value of community because it's been proven so many times over and over, but there is a significant business ROI for investing in community. And what we saw over time is that we really needed to broaden our focus to much more holistic level of change, that in order for um, a community to move forward, you need to start from within the organization. And then if you were to like zoom that out, and if I were to predict the future of what we'll be doing five years from now, you know, if you look at community layer change, the community level of change, and how that's dependent on the organizational level of change, if you were to go like one level deeper or maybe one level higher, depending on how you're framing it, there's also the element of personal change as well. So if you want to see change externalize in the world, you must start with yourself, then start with the organization, then, then go in, out into the community. So there's various levers and pathways for change. And that is what we focus on today. And no, I never thought that we were going to be working on that, but that's... um been the natural output of our of our growth and evolution over time. And so you have a more holistic approach than when you first started. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so just a few moments ago, you said that you noticed that organizations who were more successful were the ones that, I see if I phrase this correctly, uh, listen well or listen better. Yeah, when you talk about listening in that way, how, how do you uh, understand listening in this context? Listening in this context means being in relationship and in communication with your core stakeholders. So a lot of our clients come to us with challenges that are multi-stakeholder levels, like they're working with their board, they're working with their executive team maybe frontline workers. They're also working with their customers and the community at large to solve a specific challenge. And organizations that are listening well are in relationship in various pathways with all of those stakeholders and have ways for them to 
solicit feedback, gather feedback and insight, and co-develop solutions together. They also know which of their stakeholders are most important for them to listen to. And that's not necessarily dependent upon who has the most um, financial leverage, so to speak. So for example, in a lot of our nonprofit clients, sometimes it'll happen where the board is very committed to a specific outcome. And maybe there's one person who donated a significant amount of money or who controls many relationships with many donors or funders. And they're the person who wants a specific outcome. And that might be in conflict with what is best for or um, recommended by the community. And oftentimes we're navigating those types of conflicts and tensions within our projects. And so organizations that are listening well are able to prioritize whose voices they are listening to. And that is an alignment in terms of equity and who they are serving as an organization. And not only are they in communication, but they're able to be responsive to what they're learning. I love what you're saying right now. First of all, when you're talking about listening, it's beyond the the one to you know, from face to face, one person type of listening, you're talking about a listening that is um, on a larger scale, and with a lot of different stakeholders and listening not only to through interviews or through but also through surveys and whatnot, right. So this is really important. I'm just thinking about our listeners to pay attention to that their listing can happen in a lot more ways than just having a conversation with someone. Absolutely. Right. And what I think is also interesting is starting to get clear about who are we listening to and making, you know, connecting the dots to the priorities of the organization and how who we're listening to also influences probably what we do and, and this responsiveness. So it's not just a passive activity. It's also, it's a very active. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Responsive. So going back to this phrase that you said about the organization's that listen well are more successful. And at the same time, you were talking about how sometimes there's a conflict of interest yep. um, that plays out. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, for the, those organizations to be more successful and they're listening, who are they listening to and how are they responding? Maybe you can give me an example. Yeah. Um, one of our projects that come to mind for me is our work with the American Medical Association. You know, the American Medical Association is a long-established association. They're often considered to be one of the gold standard associations. And we worked with them a few years ago as they're revamping their physician experience. They saw an opportunity to deepen their relationship with their physician members. And they're also largely going through a great organizational transition of digital transformation, so to speak, more generally speaking, becoming a more... Um, digital and content-oriented company as opposed to more of a traditional marketing company. And one of the ways in which they were, one of the ways in which they were struggling, so to speak, was really understanding how to best serve their physician members going forward. And they realized that they didn't actually know what their physician members needed and wanted. They did meet with their physician members on a semi-annual basis. Um, an annual and a conference where they would vote on specific initiatives, but beyond that, they weren't in constant engagement with their members and weren't really quite sure of how to best add value to them and uh, deepen their relationship with them. And I think that's pretty common in many organizations where there's almost like a fear of intimacy with customers, so to speak. And I say customers very broadly here because physician members of the American Medical Association are not customers per se; they're they're members. But your consumer-facing or customer-facing stakeholder, whatever that might be for you, there can be somewhat of a fear of being in relationship or in engagement with them. And that can happen for a few different reasons. One, it could be a fear of criticism. It could be, um, it could be organizational bloat where there's simply too many layers between decision makers and the end customers. There's many reasons why that might happen. So what the American Medical Association learned through doing research with their members was that physicians really wanted to grow their leadership positions around specific policy positions, whether that was women's health or trans health, or perhaps it was around end-of-life care. 
And they wanted to become more involved with the American Medical Association, but not necessarily to amplify the AMA's marketing messages, so to speak. They really wanted to grow their own specific platform. So the AMA needed to figure out a way that they could reach their own business goals, which were around amplifying the AMA's incredible policy work, as well as growing their own membership and align those interests with the interests of members, which was around growing their own leadership platform. So it needed to become uh, more relational and more mutually beneficial. And that's typically where a lot of our work lies is really understanding what it is that people's needs are through listening. And for us, that typically takes place through design research, which is heavily interview driven, and then using the insights developed from that process to understand what people's needs are and then align those needs. So for the American Medical Association, we ended up creating a few different programs that allowed content to be made and then and then physicians were able to customize that content with their own voice and with their own perspective to amplify their own voice, but with the AMA's content, so to speak. So it's more, much more about like, hey, here's this amazing thing that we did that pushes XYZ policy forward. And then the physician could be like, here's my specific opinion on this policy. So that was like a really interesting learning in terms of listening and then aligning the expectations for what that future program looks like. And in addition to that, one of the key recommendations that came out of that was generally creating an internal insights program with the AMA to get to know their physicians on a much more intimate level and also change how the organization measured success and moving from an activity-based performance culture to outcomes-based performance culture. I think that's one of the greatest challenges about listening is that when you are listening, there is a responsibility to what you're hearing. You have to take action on what you hear. And if your organization's culture is one of activity, like, you know, like pushing paper, so to speak, and like, hey, like I sent five emails, that's not going to cut it when you're moving into a much more responsive type of culture where listening is prioritized because sending five emails doesn't mean that you got the specific outcome that was required to enact whatever it was that you learned from listening. So you need to move towards a much more outcomes-driven culture that incorporates accountability. You know, I was just thinking as you were saying that, I thought, you know, um, you know, it could be that a client comes to you and says, hey, help us here align our, the needs here of the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And you go in and you do your design um, research, and we can talk about that more in just a few moments, but you go in and do this. And so you're doing a lot of listening to the stakeholders, and you put together the the key insights and take this to the decision makers. And um, I'm just imagining there, there's probably clients of yours where they take it in and other times where it's really hard to, hard to Absolutely. accept. Yeah. <laughs> Or they understand it from one perspective and not really being open to the perspective of the stakeholders that you interviewed. And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know if you have some experiences there that might give some insight into people listening to this, you know, what might, might help organizations be more likely to listen in a way that would lead to success in this way. (laughs) That has absolutely happened before. And that's always a really challenging situation particularly when the insights are rejected, so to speak, by decision makers. And typically when that happens, that's a very, it's not a good sign. It's not, um, it's oftentimes foreboding of a really challenging future where an organization is unable to meet the needs of a specific set of stakeholders. And depending upon the um, power or relation of that stakeholder, like customers, for example, if you're not meeting your customers' needs, they're going to go find that need solved elsewhere. Yeah. And so when an organization is rejecting what it is that they're, that they're hearing and learning, that's usually uh, a bad sign. Okay. <laughs> that being said, it has absolutely happened where they learn something surprising and they're able to be responsive towards it. So for example, we recently wrapped up a project with an incredible organization called Tokativity. They are a global cannabis community for women, and we were helping them to shift their membership model. 
they, you know, of course, were heavily impacted by COVID-19. Previously, they had had an in-person events model that started in Portland and then grew, grew to uh, incorporate events around the world. And, uh, you know, with COVID-19, they were no longer able to host these in-person events and they had to shift to a digital model, which ultimately was incredibly beneficial for them and really helped them to grow and scale. However, they needed to re-examine how it was that they were engaging with their members and what that uh, would look like for their business going forward. And so one of the things they learned through their member research was that the value proposition of their membership needed to shift. While the components and benefits and the specific things that a member received as being part of a member actually did not need to change, the perception of what membership was and what it was like to be part of this community needed to shift in terms of communications and, and marketing. So basically how they frame how they framed yeah. their value. Yes, exactly. They needed to, to change how they um, their value proposition basically. Mm-hmm. So like imagine if you have a car rather than talking about how fast it goes, you're talking about like the really cool technology that it has in the engine. So it's about like shifting the way that they were speaking about what it was that they were doing. And I think one of the really surprising things that came out of that research was just how much their members loved them. And that was a really shocking learning for their executive team because there was a lot of tension in the community at the time in which they conducted the research. And um, Sam and Lisa, the co-founders, they definitely went into this listening practice with a little bit of hesitancy and fear. And I honestly, I have to give them a lot of credit because they did it anyways, even though that they were hesitant and they were scared of what they might learn. And what they learned was surprising, but also really relieving to them. What they heard from their members was that they were incredibly invested in the mission of the company and they absolutely loved Tokativity. And even though there had been some recent changes and some tension, their members were all in. And so they were really able to leverage those learnings to reposition their membership to be much more about being in community with people and supporting the global cannabis movement and equity within the social justice component of the cannabis community as well. So that was a really interesting learning. Yeah, I love what you're saying, though. There, there is a, there's a huge vulnerability to going through this process. And maybe you can describe to our listeners just maybe a, you know, a kind of an overview of the process that you use to get to these insights. Hmm. For Tokativity specifically, we engaged in two different types of research. We conducted a survey to really understand how people were using their membership today, what their current expectations were. And also Sam and Lisa each conducted um, direct member interviews. And they conducted member interviews across a few different layers within their community from their bare bones, basic membership to those who are paying like higher value memberships, as well as specific business categories within their membership. They also spoke to leaders within their community as well, who were highly engaged and leading a lot of their functions. So it was really about speaking to a wide variety of stakeholders and understanding why are you engaging? Why are you showing up? What do you need? How can we help? And like, what else do we need to know? And that was really powerful for them. Typically in our engagements, we are conducting a lot of stakeholder interviews. We practice design thinking at Sharehold, which is really about bringing the user along on the journey of this problem solving process and really putting the user at the center of that process. And we use design research as a way to gather those insights. Our primary research method in design research is an interview-based research method where we are conducting open-ended inquiries in a creative and methodological way to gather insights. And then we compile them, we code them, we count them, and we synthesize like, what did we learn from this process? So it's, it's both a creative methodology, but also a very, um, it's, methodological. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I thought it was interesting. You said that the, the two ladies, which are owners of the, of Toka, wait, Tokativity. Tokativity. Um, I have to look that up, that they also did the interviews themselves. So sometimes people will, will, or your clients will also take part in the interviews. Maybe not always, but sometimes. 
Yes, that's right. They are a very small team, so it really made sense for Sam and Lisa to lead these interviews, though for the majority of our clients, we're actually leading the team, the interviews on our team. So we're conducting the interviews on their behalf. So that's really speaking to like the scale and the size of the project. But also, um, I think it was really important for Tokativity to learn how to directly engage their community in a way that would allow them to continue that process on an ongoing basis. Mm. Um, oftentimes in our work with Sharehold, this is like a one single moment of time where we're solving one specific challenge. But our goal and the outcome that we're always looking for is to increase our clients' capacity and ability to continue this process on an ongoing basis after our engagement ends. And that's really about transferring not just specific skill sets, but also value sets as well. So really um, driving home that they want to be in relationship with their customers. And, you know, our mission at Sharehold is to expand the definition of what it means to be a shareholder to include everyone within an organization's orbit. And we hope that our clients can come to embody that mission as well. You know, so to take that and come back to the listening piece, I mean, your your process is listening to these stakeholders and kind of a scaled up type of listening, right, mm-hmm. for a specific project. And now you're talking about, you know, also what happens after to make the changes and to... Um, to work with them so that they have the skills and capabilities to continue and their success continues afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I know when we had been talking beforehand about listening and you were saying how important it is for the executive leaders to prioritize that, even though it's probably, I don't know how far they've gotten, right? Because you know, I know that there's, on one hand, there's a lot of focus on communication and I'm not sure how much voice listening has, and you've just given them an experience of what the value is. And I was just wondering, is do you see in your process with your clients, do you see something shift in their mindset from when you start with them to the end on how they perceive listening and the value of it? Have you noticed Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say it's probably the shift that we see happen is a lot more holistic than just listening. It's about the value of putting your user or your customer at the center of your solution building process. So it's really about reorienting your organization to serving your primary stakeholder, which is oftentimes the customer. And listening is one of the capabilities that is required to do that. Um, I'd like to take a little bit of a shift right now to some of the, the research that you've done recently about redesigning belonging in organizations. So part of our Our work at Shareholds in helping organizations to move forward is understanding what it is that people need, right? And when you create an environment where listening is valued, you're oftentimes looking for the outcome of belonging. Like you're looking to design a solution or a process or a program where people see themselves reflected. They want to see themselves belong within that end context. So a few years ago, we started hearing a lot about belonging and it was becoming um, a business and cultural buzzword. And our clients were asking us to create cultures and communities of belonging. And we're like, okay, like what specifically do you mean by belonging? (laughs) And that was like a really fascinating topic as community builders and organizational designers. We were like, what does this mean? So we began researching belonging. And last year, Sharehold launched a project around understanding what belonging means inside of organizations. Our initial goal was to benchmark belonging inside of organizations of all types. We were calling it a belonging benchmark, and we were going to launch that in March of 2020. Um, So we all know what happened. There was a pandemic, (laughs) and we realized that it was not possible to create a benchmark of belonging in such abnormal circumstances where literally everyone was in crisis. So we pivoted, and we were like, how can we use this moment of crisis, or how can we, what can we learn from this moment of crisis about belonging? So this took us down a really interesting and rich line of inquiry around how does uncertainty impact the experience of belonging, specifically at work? And the reason why we were focusing in at work was because of our uh, growing organizational design practice and also because there's a really rich body of research that already exists around belonging at work. And we felt that this was an area that we could both build upon and contribute towards. 
So we conducted this research last year. Our interview started in May of 2020 and continued throughout the summer. And as you can imagine, the types of uncertainty that we experienced throughout that period of time um, it's huge. <laughs> not only extensive, but also just kept escalating. So we were looking at, you know, shelter in place orders and the dramatic shift to working from home. Also, at the end of May, George Floyd was murdered and there was protests across the entire United States and around the world. And increasingly, there was anxiety and tension around the election that was coming up in the United States as well. So this was an enormous time of uncertainty in the U.S. and at work and the ways in which that showed up in the office. And yeah, we, we learned a ton. <laughs> so the results of this research was a report called Redesigning Belonging, How Uncertainty Magnifies Belonging at Work. And one of the core outcomes of that, that process, that listening process with employees, HR leaders, as well as thought leaders across belonging, mental health, and DEI, was a group assessment tool for visualizing and improving belonging experiences inside of both teams and groups at large. Hmm. Um, just for some of the listeners that might be listening, that's diversity and inclusion. Yes. <laughs> just to... DEI is diversity, yeah. equity, and inclusion. Equity, inclusion, right. Um, okay, so you um, were planning this research. The pandemic hit. <laughs> you continued with a slightly adapted uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably... You know, I, I was reading through your, um, through your, I guess, pamphlet or whatever that was describing the research. And um, so if, if listeners who are here, maybe we can put a link to that to, for them to read through. That's really interesting. And there was something in there that stuck out to me because my neighbor, we take walks in the morning. That's how we got through this pandemic or have been getting <laughs> through this, this pandemic. And, and she, you know, tells me, she's like, oh, every, you know, things that, you know, it's like you're, you're holding a magnifying glass up. And things are kind of coming to the surface with yeah. everything going on. And I, I read that in your report. Well, you had a sentence there. I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> I think you noticed that too, that there, that it's, you know, this uncertainty. I mean, of course, things were a little bit more extreme this year, but when it comes down to it, uncertainty was probably there already. But, mm-hmm. you know, with, because there's companies are always changing, restructuring. There's, there's stuff like that happening all the time. And also, there's um, uncertainty that, you know, hasn't been voiced <laughs> until recently. And so I, you know, I'd love to, what are a couple of insights that you think would be really important for our listeners to know about that you learned from this, from this research on belonging? Well, as the title implies, uncertainty magnifies belonging experiences, both in the negative and the positive. We did find that with shelter-in-place orders, belonging did decrease across organizations by about five percentage points on average. However, that wasn't the most significant finding. We absolutely thought that a lot more of our findings would relate to remote working. And while remote work does have a big impact on the experience of belonging at work, it's simply not the largest factor. One of the largest factors in the experience of belonging at work is honestly, like the power dynamics that play out at work, both in interpersonal level, but just in the larger systemic level. And the way that gets expressed, I think a way to sum that up is in the definition of belonging that we uncovered. We uncovered four different types of belonging. There's foundational belonging, which is really the transactional level of belonging or that layer belonging that is like, are you meeting my needs uh, I'm a working parent. Am I able to like take care of my child? And that really became clear throughout the pandemic and working from home where a lot of parents were, uh, you know, juggling both their job and also childcare. This also yeah, they comes still up. Are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we still are. <laughs> and it also comes up into mental health. Like, are you acknowledging that, you know, I'm suffering anxiety right now? Uh, are you paying me for my job in like a way that I can actually live my life? So that's really about the foundational basic level of belonging that really ties into a person's, uh, their needs and just generally their dignity and well-being. Are you recognizing that this is a person who has needs that extend beyond the office? Um, the second type of belonging was self-belonging. So that's really about belonging to yourself your own, your self-affirmation and self-recognition of your value and what you contribute to work, that you know that your work has a specific impact and you um, see a pathway for yourself moving forward. So you know how to contribute to the group moving forward. There's also the group 
type of belonging, which is typically what we talk about when we talk about belonging at work. This involves like the group dynamics, and this includes participation. It includes recognition, rewards, and also um, affirming that what you contribute is valued by the group as a whole. And then, of course, there's societal belonging, which really was highlighted in 2020, which is what happens out in the world impacts how you belong within the group and at work. So as an organization, are you acknowledging that this context exists and that the uh, way in which someone belongs or does not belong within society and is affirmed or not affirmed by society impacts the dynamic within your team and the group as well? So these four different types of belonging, they're interdependent on each other and they all show up at work. And from... From the interviews or what, from what you, from your insight, if you were to give a couple of tips to some of our leaders who are listening on this podcast, you know, um, what might be important for them to pay attention to when it comes to these belonging, um, what would you say? Man, there's, there's so much to unpack here. I would approach this in a few different layers. One is... As a leader, it is your responsibility to shape belonging experiences at work. This is something that is within your capacity and within your control and is your job as a leader. Can you give me an example of what a, a belonging experience is? Yeah, um, the belonging experience is uh, simply like anyone who shows up at your job has a belonging experience, whether or not you're focusing on it. And it is your responsibility to make sure that that is a positive experience and that everyone feels that they belong. So it could be all the way from onboarding programs and, and how that's managed so that people get to meet people and they understand things, right? Or to one-on-ones where, where employees have a chance to really consider their career path and what they, and what they're, you know, how to grow in the organization and they're clear with that path or, that if there's a team or there there's some team that that um, that's not just the dominant speaker speaking, but that there's some way that the different voices can be heard. I'm just throwing some things out right now. Yeah, those are perfect examples there. Mm-hmm. And as a leader, it's not only prioritizing to ensure that those specific processes and moments are done well, but also that it is just generally an organizational priority to foster a culture of belonging within your organization. And then beyond that, I think it's also important to recognize that within society today, like there's so much emphasis on our sense of meaning and identity coming from work. And I believe we also need to begin to recognize that while it is an employer's and a leader's responsibility to shape belonging experiences, work cannot be the only place where we feel that we belong. And one of the most additive ways that an organization or a leader can um, foster a sense of belonging is to really ensure that your team has what they need to create their own sense of belonging and identity outside of work. So it's really about making sure that they have sufficient time off and the resources they need to belong elsewhere. And that's those two recommendations. They, they sound like they're an opposite of each other, but they're, they're intentionally at tension and you need to find a balance between the two. Like you are responsible, responsible for fostering and creating a culture of belonging at work. And also we need to consider that we need to begin to look for our sense of identity and belonging elsewhere outside of work as well. You know, that reminds me, I've had a, just recently, you know, with some of the coaching clients that I've had, I've noticed a pattern where often when I first talk to them, you know, they're, you know, overwhelmed, <laughs> you're trying to figure things out and, and they're working a lot, a lot of hours, more than normal, you know, with under the current circumstances, like there's no break and working late. And then just to take some time to get clear about things that they love to do that they kind of forgot about, you know, Pilates, <laughs> yoga, or, you know, because you can't really meet with people right now, but to find something to care for themselves where they actually stop at a certain time, what's happening is creating that space that's okay to have that space. They're actually becoming more productive at work. 
and feeling better at work, you know? So it's, it's, absolutely. it's uh, also, and you can hear that and say, oh, well, then people have to take the responsibility for themselves. But I mean, a lot of these people are young, they're in their profession, they're, they're trying to do the best they can, you know, because they want, you know, they don't want to lose their job and they're fearful of the perception there. And so to let them know it's okay is also, and encourage it is also really important. And maybe yeah. the storytelling and whatnot. Yeah. Or role modeling. <laughs> and oftentimes that, um, that feeling that it is okay to prioritize your well-being and health and your family outside of work, that type of expectation is set from the top. So it's really about leading by example. So if you were to say, um, if you were to connect listening with belonging, you mm-hmm. know, with what you learn with belonging, how does listening play out in creating a culture of belonging? I love how direct that question is. And listening is the capability and the practice that allows you to be seen, heard, and valued in the creation and design process. So when you listen, you are able to understand what it is that people need. You hear them, and by the very mere fact of listening to them, you are showing that you value their perspective, their inputs, and their opinions and uh, that you respect their needs. Then you take what you are listening to, what you are hearing, what you are learning, and you are applying those. You are designing specific solutions that meet their needs. And that is how listening and belonging connect to each other. Listening is the practice of showing someone that they belong. You know, I was thinking as you're, you're, in my mind, I guess I just have this picture as, you know, we, we talk a lot about listening, but this listening is like, um, is, is giving voice to people being human <laughs> and people wanting to have value in the world and wanting to be a part of something bigger. And it's like giving voice to also engagement and I guess that I'm just thinking yeah. about the connection with, um, and then responding, but it has to be this mixture of listening with response because without the response, then it doesn't work. And even as we're talking through it, I would say that listening is not the process. It is a process for showing people that they belong because yeah, right. it's not enough to simply listen. You need to also take action. Right. And you also need to um, show up and be and act in a way on an ongoing basis that shows people that they are seen, heard, and valued, and that they fit within the group and the system. So taking that back to tokativity, their action, they listened, and their action was to communicate in a way that their customers connected or their community connected with it. It helped their communication shifted in a way that their their community could connect with and listen to them even more. Yeah. And even beyond that, I'm sure by the time that we share this podcast publicly, they will have taken that a little bit further as well. One of our best practices at Sharehold is to share back what we learn through the research process. And we recommend that this is uh, this should be the best practice across the industry. Unfortunately, it is not. However, I think there's um, some early indications that's beginning to change. Tokativity will be sharing back with their community what they learned in a really transparent manner. And that's uh, super exciting. I think one of the best ways that you can thank people for their contributions when they participate in research is to show them what you learned and what impact their contributions had. Hmm. Going back yeah. to, again, um, listening as a way of demonstrating belonging. Um, so I'm curious, with even with this example, um, how did that change you? Me as a person? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, specifically in regards to tokativity, I loved watching Sam and Lisa gain confidence through our work together. They really showed what it is like to step up as a leader and what it means to lead a community in a really vulnerable and powerful way. And I found a lot of inspiration in that. Okay. And so you observed this, you saw them doing this, you saw them grow, and this inspired you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, it inspired me, and I'm not sure what change that has had in me yet. Yeah. Um, I think that it is coming. 
Yeah, that's interesting. But it's, you know, and it maybe has nothing to do with the organization, but just watching the process of of watching people, you know, change in a certain way and be vulnerable, which is, you know, really interesting. And then, yeah, yeah. I'm always curious about how, how when we listen in these, because you do a lot of listening when it comes down to it. <laughs> and, you know, I was just wondering, I thought, oh, that must be, I know how much like every podcast I do and I listen to, you know, you, like I know I can feel it changing me, right? Mm. My perception, my understanding. And I, and so I don't, you're right. I'm not always clear exactly how it changes me, but I can tell that it does. I would like to think in aggregate that there's a change that happens, right? Like when we yeah. listen to people over time, I think it makes me more willing to listen. Of course, you know, as an organization that conducts this type of research, we always struggle to do this for ourselves as well. So it's not just to say, oh, listening is so easy. This process of design and uh, building a community is so easy. It's not. It's really hard work. And the more that we do it for others, the more we're able to do it for ourselves. Nice. If you could share one tool or something practical that might be helpful for our listeners, what would that be? Well, in our redesigning belonging research, we have, one of the outcomes of our research was a really amazing assessment tool that organizations can use to understand and visualize and take action on their team's experience of belonging. This is a really great way to begin to identify which of the four types of belonging is an opportunity for your organization and your team. And you can find that on our website at sharehold.co backslash redesigning belonging. And you can find the assessment both in the free white paper version of the insights, as well as the full booklet and workbook, which also contains additional exercises and activities for your team, in addition to um, significantly more in-depth information about our research. And we can also add that to the link uh, to the information in the podcast, to the notes. Yeah. And I would also add on to that, I would encourage anybody who is listening in to really do a deep inquiry into the value of design thinking and design research as a whole, particularly in the conversations that design is having right now about creating more inclusive listening practices and inclusive research practices. Um, Design thinking and design research is a really powerful tool for listening and centering your core stakeholders within a process. I mean, it's great that you brought that up because I do get lots of questions about, you know, how do you, <laughs> how do you facilitate, I'm going to say listening. And here's one where you can actually use that to gain deep insight that can change your organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Really exciting. Actually. Yeah. And one of the most exciting things about design research, as opposed to market research, is that it's not really about understanding what exists today, but it's about understanding what the possibilities are for the future. I think that's one of the reasons why I love design research so much is that it's not really looking at the what, it's looking at the why, and then using that why to uh, identify new possibilities. Yeah, very exciting. With all the research that you've done, and in terms of looking into the future, if you had some wish from the organizations uh, that you might work with in the future that would help further this work, what would they be? My wish for the future is that maybe this is well, this is absolutely aspirational. Go for I it. wish that we could all take a deeper pause for a moment and for even a month, a week, several days, suspend the pressure to think short term, like remove the responsibilities that we have to our literal shareholders and the immediate pressure to generate revenue and to keep the lights on even, and if that's possible, and really think about where it is that we want to be five years from now and really think long-term. And I believe that if we were to do that, if we were to suspend for a moment that short-term thinking, that we would uh, identify how it is that we want to operate differently. A lot of our clients at Sherhold, they really want to become organizations that listen on an ongoing basis and that are truly responsive and accountable to various types of stakeholders, specifically their customers. But there's oftentimes 
short-term immediate needs that are roadblocks in their path to fully embodying and meeting that full potential and that full future. So my wish, my aspirational wish is to suspend for a moment short-term thinking so that we can all think long-term and create new organizations, communities, products, and teams that truly are responsive to and that show our stakeholders that they belong. And that sounds like a superpower, just to pause (laughs) and do that just for a moment. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, We can manufacture that for you if you'd like. (laughs) Wonderful. My mind is buzzing. (laughs) Um, Is there anything that I have not asked you that you would like me to ask you or anything else you'd like to add? You know, I think the only thing I'd like to add to this conversation is that an internal listening practice for your team has real results for your customers. So oftentimes, one of the things that hold, holds organizations back from listening internally and doing this internal belonging work is that, you know, our priorities are with our customers right now. We have that immediate PNL again, like speaking to that suspension of short-term thinking, we have this immediate need. And so we cannot prioritize taking care of our team or listening internally right now or fostering a culture of belonging. And We know from our experience and from data that that is simply not true. In fact, there was a recent article in HBR that uh, showed that uh, I'm actually going going to to read this out. Each one-star improvement in a company's Glassdoor rating corresponds to a 1.3 point of 100 improvement in customer satisfaction scores, a statistically significant impact. So when you take care of your team and you create a foster belonging internally, you are creating an impact for your customers and you are growing your revenue. Yes. And that's like beyond even the business case for belonging, which (laughs) does exist. Companies that invest in belonging can save up to $52 million a year for a team of 10,000 people. So it's very, very significant to foster culture belonging. However, I don't want to dive into that too deeply because I think the real case for belonging is a much more humanistic and about um, serving people's needs well and really scratching that more soulful personal itch. So messages, everyone listening, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there's a human need. There is a practical business need. And with that argument, why wouldn't you be doing this and prioritizing it? Hey, I'm in. (laughs) I'm in. Oh, thank you so much for this very interesting. And I I knew at the beginning, I thought, oh, I'm curious where this will go. And it was really interesting and I learned a lot from you. And I'm, I hope, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work and what happens with all your, with all your clients. Thank you so much, Raquel. It was so amazing to unpack this with you. And I really appreciate all of your thoughtful questions. I am your host, Raquel Ark from Listening Alchemy, and I hope that you were inspired by this episode of Listen In. So now's the time for you to grow your listening superpower so that you can have lasting impact. I'll be launching a new workshop in May of 2021. This workshop will be experiential. It will be in person, well, on Zoom, and we'll learn and practice seven listening superpowers that really work, proven by science. If you go to my website now at www.listeningalchemy.com, you can sign up there and I'll keep you updated on when the dates are. Let me know that you heard about this workshop on my podcast and you'll get a 30% discount. Also, subscribe and like this podcast, sharing it with others so that we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Evo t for producing the music, Cecilia Mercado for getting the podcast set up, and Betsy Johnson for her amazing artwork. Enjoy listening in. <laughs>